0: Today we speak with an advocate who has been engaged as a national leader of an organization that has over 760,000 members and over 8,800 chapters. It is among the largest youth organizations and the largest career and technical student organization in the United States. I'm speaking of the National FFA organization known to many as Future Farmers of America.
1: participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard.
0: Welcome to the Voices and Advocacy podcast, and I hope you're enjoying season four. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices and Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into even more effective, influential advocates. And This is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts for their organizations, be they corporations, associations, trade organizations, and non-profit cause groups. Now, let's get started. On today's show, we speak with Courtney Lehman, the 2019-2020 National Secretary at the National FFA Organization. She's also a past president of the Oregon FFA. Courtney is currently a senior at Oregon Oregon State University studying agriculture business management with a leadership minor. Now, when I say currently, she graduates in a week. Post-graduation, she will be headed off to the land of Florida to attend law school at the University of Florida in the Florida Gators. She grew up farming in western Idaho and eastern Oregon. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome Courtney to today's show. Welcome, Courtney.
1: Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Wonderful. I'm, I'm excited, too. I mean, I, first of all, I love talking to young people, and I love talking to people that have uh, a passion and a drive for what they do. And, and I must say, you're already quite accomplished. So congratulations.
1: Thank you. I do appreciate that. I've been very blessed and lucky to have some really awesome people in my life who pushed me to definitely go after a lot of things I never imagined I could do.
0: Oh, absolutely. So let's start at the beginning. What drove your decision to join FFA in the first place?
1: It was honestly a bit of an ironic journey getting here. Um, I grew up in a farming family, and because of that, a lot of my family was involved in FFA all the way back to my grandpa. And so, when I hit high school as the youngest of four, I felt it was my responsibility to be the rebellious child and not join FFA (laughs) and be different. And I fully intended on that. But um, the summer before my freshman year of high school, I was showing steers through 4 H at the county fair. And I had just finished the livestock judging event, and the judge that I had given my reasons to, I hadn't recognized. He was newer to the community, and he came up to me when I was honestly eating a Big Mac, just hanging out <laughs> like those pre-high schoolers do. And um, he's like, "Hey, I, my name's Seth Bingham. I'm the new um, FFA teacher at Baker High School, and I'm not walking away until you agree to sign up for an ag class." And so I did because he truly did not walk away till I signed up for an FFA class. And then um, as all the FFA advisors do, Mr. Bingham, my first year, just signed me up for anything and everything. I was the constant voluntold student to be part of things. Um, And I'm so grateful for that because him pushing me to become involved uh, started a part of my life that would go on for years um, that is still very active today. And so... That's how I got there. I really didn't expect to. I really tried to fight it for a long time. Um, But it took one person to really push me into it.
0: So the Big Mac is what really got you into this. If you hadn't been eating that Big Mac, you might not have been there. This might not have happened at all.
1: (laughs) Yep, it all started with a Big Mac.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, McDonald's would be proud of that. And uh, that's interesting that you go way back and grandpa was all part of FFA as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was, it's really cool. At um, my dad's house this summer, he let me redecorate um, the upstairs kind of sitting room. That's also the office for the farm. And so I had my grandpa had given me his jacket when I got elected to national office. Um, and my aunt was active way back when there used to be a program called the FFA Sweethearts. And it was kind of like the chapter would pick a girl that would kind of be their sweetheart. And they had these white corduroy jackets instead of blue. Um, And so they're really rare jackets. So she gave me hers um, when she passed away, which was really cool to have. And so I have my grandpa's jacket, my dad's jacket, my jacket, my aunt's jacket, my sibling's jackets all hung up in that room. So it's cool to walk in and to see just kind of the legacy of involvement in the program.
0: Yeah, quite a history there. So what motivated you then to get into the state leadership? (laughs) Voluntold?
1: Kind of, (laughs) less so though. So Mr. Ringham um, was my ACT teacher for my first couple of years of high school and he definitely was very good at volunteering me to be part of different things. Um, But he transferred to a different school. Um, So my junior year, we had a new advisor. Um, Her name was Bibiana Gift and she was incredible. Uh, She was definitely one of the first people in my life that really made me feel like I could be more than I was at the moment and that I had a lot more potential that I wasn't giving myself credit for. So she pushed me to be a lot more involved and run for chapter president and district office and she um, helped me get prepared and run for state office and so she was just always there by my side. I remember just a few weeks into her being in our school she wrote me a letter at one of our leadership camps. Um, and I still have it today um, because it was so encouraging and kind and it makes me think about how influential people can be in our lives and, um, how I wouldn't be where I am today without just a few people.
0: That's, that's a wonderful testimonial on behalf of what leadership and leadership training can do to put you in a, in a perfect place there. So speaking of leadership, what do you think are, uh, Let's say the top three, if you can think of three, leadership lessons you learned while being involved in FFA, both at the the state or national level, wherever they they come from.
1: Well, definitely during my national office year, I think was the largest growth that I experienced, um, which I expected to um, being in that role. But even more so, my team was the team in place when COVID hit. And so we had what was supposed to be a year where we travel every day, pretty much to a new place and meet with students to a year that was halfway through transfer to an online setting. And all of a sudden we had to figure out how to still engage with students, how to have workshops and keynotes and all of these things through an online platform. And back then people didn't even hardly know what Zoom was. And so we were really trying to pioneer um, transferring education and leadership onto that platform. And so. That took a lot more adaptability than I had probably ever had in my life, but I think even more on a character level, my team really held onto the mantra that our method had changed of what we were trying to accomplish that year, but our mission to inspire and impact students remained the same. It just looks different how we were going to accomplish that mission, and so that's something I've really held with me throughout my the rest of my leadership journey since then is What's important is the mission of what you're trying to do, but there's going to be situations that happen, whether that is a pandemic or any other thing, just life gets busy, you have to be willing to change your methods and know that it can still be just as impactful no matter how it looks getting to the end point.
0: Yeah, that's, that is. Uh, I, I have been in leadership uh, with a, uh, a trade association during this period of time, and I happen to be the president Uh, when the pandemic began, and so we went from uh, getting a lot of money uh, for our live events into not having any money coming in from having, uh, you know, virtual uh, events, and how do you adapt? How do you become that chameleon that can change the color and the stripe to be able to uh, still achieve the mission, whatever the method is? And still keep people involved and engaged in that. So that that's a that is a great great uh, lesson to be learned. So why should advocacy be important to future farmers?
1: Hmm. <laughs> I think when it comes to agriculture there's so many reasons why advocacy is so important um what I love about agriculture and part of why I've gotten so involved in the industry is one I was born into it so I was definitely a place that I was always used to um, but why I've continued to be part of it is because what's unique about agriculture is it is one of few industries that people rely on because of necessity um rather than just because of excess right um It's not just something that we have because we like it. It's something we have because we need it. Everyone wears clothes. Everyone eats food. And that's what agriculture does. It feeds and provides for families all across the world. And so with that and that heavy burden that agriculturalists have, there's a very small portion of people that is continually getting smaller that is trying to enact that mission, that's trying to bring it to fruition. And so as future agriculturalists join and as the generations get older and we start to step into the industry today, we have to keep in mind that we have a very small workforce that's trying to accomplish a very, very big task. And that takes a lot of communication, of telling our story of what agriculture looks like, of explaining processes to get that support and that commitment from people who aren't involved, who might have questions. And so I think that Today, more than ever, where uh, things can be streamed across the world in a matter of seconds, we need to be active in telling our story and of fighting for people to be involved in this industry because it is so important.
0: You know, you, you reminded me of a couple of things there. One, about how the workforce now is smaller. I was doing research uh, for a speaking event, and I can't remember all the statistics correctly. But somewhere around 1940, there were like 22% of workers in America were in the ag industry. And the last number that I saw, it was under 4% of the workforce is involved in ag. Yet there are more people, more food being developed, uh, more being exported uh, by volume. And yet that workforce has shrunk. And so there's probably a higher level of pressure being put on them to to be able to do that, plus the economic and financial pressure of success in that. It's it's not very easy, uh, a career and uh, not an easy place to eke out a living for your family.
1: Yeah, um, I actually just, uh, I work for the, as a student coordinator for the College of Agriculture's marketing team right now. And I recently wrote an article um, called what we nurture grows and what it really talks about is how being part of agriculture is really a culture in itself Uh, we're a different kind of people that have our own set of values and our own practices and that pressure that you're talking about of the finances the burden of feeding the world Um, but then also for so many people it's the burden of keeping a family legacy going of not being the one to lose the family farm that's been in practice for hundreds of years and so how that has stemmed into this unique situation with the mental health crisis in rural communities is something that I've spent a lot of time um, trying to learn more about, um, but also trying to be more of an advocate for moving forward because it, hit, it hits rural communities in such a unique way. Um, and we need to figure out how we can work on the, not only accessibility of rural communities for farmers and people involved in agriculture to have access to different resources to help with a mental health crisis, But also the flip side of that, that acceptability of realizing that we are in a more susceptible industry because of these extra burdens and these high pressure situations um, that we have to be more willing to say, yes, we're a strong group. We're very independent, but we also, like everybody else, need help. Uh, You never just throw seeds in the ground and expect them to grow without pouring into them. And it has to be the same for ourselves.
0: Yeah, just just like your example of the seeds into the ground, they need to be nurtured and taken care of monitored and watched. And uh, it's the same with our mental health. What a, what a great uh, example. Uh, I'm not, I'm not coming up with the right word. I'm supposed to be the guy that knows how to use words. Uh, But, uh, but I think that that's a great example. And then you've got the, uh, some of the added pressures of, of how to operate today has changed dramatically. And we know that one of the big issues uh, in the industry is accessibility to rural broadband uh, because that's necessary operating equipment, being able to communicate, uh, it, it's, it's changed an awful lot. So with that, you brought up a big challenge uh, facing farmers in the future. Five years down the road, what do you think is going to be the biggest issue facing farmers?
1: You know, that is a question we talk about in my classes all the time. Um, And I don't think there's just one answer because I think that everyone has such unique situations. I look at things happening in Oregon right now. Something that's going on is uh, legislation that would require overtime pay for agricultural workers. Well, we know the seasonality of our industry. We don't work um, as regularly year round. But in the summer season and harvest season, it's very long hours. So for producers to be able to pay that over time on an already very small labor force is something that's going to be really big in Oregon in the next few years. Um, But then there's also a lot of crisis in telling the agriculture story. We live in a world of cancel culture where one image can define an industry for years to come. And I think as agriculturalists, when people become more and more removed from the industry and understand less what the practices look like, one image could go out that given the wrong narrative could completely destroy a company. (laughs) And with already such a small group of people working to produce for the world, that's something we have to be extra aware of is being early and proactive and telling our story and explaining our processes and helping consumers understand what we do and what this means and what this label means versus this label and what this practice looks like um, is also something that we're really gonna have to focus on. And then I think the last piece is really just strengthening and developing rural communities, whether that's through healthcare, whether that's through mental health services, whether that's through broadband or infrastructure. Um, Rural communities are really struggling, especially coming out of the pandemic. And that's where so many agricultural families live um, and are trying to thrive. And so we have to take care of our communities if we wanna take care of our producers.
0: Very articulate. (laughs) Great job laying that out. Uh, and laying it out with many different facets uh, along with it. Do you think that there's going to be a, chall- a greater challenge down the road uh, with things like meat processors and uh, the availability to be able to get the goods to market, particularly if, if you're on, on, the, on the meat side of things uh, in agriculture? Uh, how do you think that will be affected?
1: I mean, I think in just in recent years, we've seen for the first time how there can be instances that have such a huge effect on the agriculture industry. Uh, consumers saw for the first time in a long time in America, shelves empty of meat products. Um, and no one knew what to do, everyone was shocked. And so I think we saw the insecurities that exist in that food chain and that um, value added chain and how we need to continue to find ways to operate, to support producers and to continue to grow. Uh, more people being involved in that industry if we want to be able to survive situations like that, because we are very fragile. We do have a lot of things, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, I'm trying to think of the right word, but a lot of legs in this wheel of agriculture. And uh, when one comes out, it affects everything, uh, because we're all related and we're all interconnected. And I think that during COVID, we saw for the first time how fragile that is. And I think moving forward, that's something we have to prioritize as agriculturalists. And you know, as the public supporting agriculture, is how can we make sure that we can be stable in those times of crisis?
0: Yes, absolutely. So we've we've kind of looked five years down the road. Uh, polish the crystal ball a little bit and tell me what you really think 25 years down the road.
1: I think for me, and I think it stems more from my own experiences at the farm, um, but I hope 25 years down the road, we still have people wanting to be in agriculture, um, not just people that grew up in the world. Um, for me, I'm, I've i always been part of it. My first word was literally moo because I grew up on a dairy and I used to go bottle feed the calves and call them moo-moos. So it's always been part of my life. But I have so many friends who didn't grow up with that. And they, they look at agriculture and they see all the work that goes into it. And they see a lot of the negative stereotypes that gets tied to the industry. And they're not. They're not sure why they'd want to go into that. And so for me, it's always wondering what happens if people stop investing in agriculture? What happens if people outside of the industry stop wanting to join and come in? And I think that's why programs like FFA and 4-H and some of those other groups are so important um, because they provide a space for students who didn't grow up in agriculture to experience it. And to see all the value that agriculture does bring to the world and how we can continue to be part of that directly and indirectly.
0: You know, and, and I think agriculture as a whole, uh, the, the different entities within uh, the agriculture community and the different uh, organizations, you know, you go from 4-H and, and the FFA and then you might get into young farmers and ranchers uh, within some of the farm bureaus and the other organizations that, lit, that, that are out there. Uh, and it seems that, I mean, clear up until you're at least 35, you've been indoctrinated into a lot of things that are going on in the industry uh, and, and what's on the minds because of the farm. Um, so when people come in, put your hat on now as the, the more senior person that, that ascended to national leadership. But when young people first get into the FFA level, uh, do they have a clue or understand the importance of advocacy?
1: You know, I, I think in practice, everyone looks at advocacy and says, oh, yeah, advocacy is important. You know, we just stand up for what matters. But I think as you progress through programs like FFA and you have opportunities to go to, Washington DC for the Washington Leadership Conference um, or New Century Farmer that's more agriculture production focused um, or even within your chapter and you really start to see that advocacy isn't just this concept and this theory that I can think about and think oh yeah that's important it's something I can live out every day and it's one thing to talk about it but it's a whole other thing to put it into practice and understand how we can effectively use our voice and our actions to make a difference and to set up the the world to set up agriculture to set up our families our communities to be more successful moving forward and i think that's what happens as students progress through these programs is they start to get experiences where they're actually trying on advocacy they're not just talking about it and they're trying it on in a very intentional approach where they're understanding each step of choosing their cause planning out their steps and then reflecting on how things went and how they can improve and that continuum is where the real important things happen where we become intentional and purposeful in our advocacy.
0: You know, and I, I uh, recently read a book that I can't think of the name of the book. (laughs) The name of the book, the name of the book was called fight. I can't think of the name of the author right now, but he was in charge of the Institute of politics at Harvard, where they do study after study year after year on people that are 18 to 28 and their philosophy and their engagement and their involvement and he was pretty excited that this generation in that group uh, is more concerned with advocacy issues than their counterparts have been for the last 25 30 years so i think that that plays right into the hand now you mentioned the washington leadership did you go to that
1: I did. Um, I went the summer before my junior year of high school, Um, and it was a really cool experience of, I think, one of the first times where I really felt like I could choose a cause that was important to me and actually have an impact on that. I grew up in a community that's really focused on service um, and giving back, and so I'd worked at food banks. I had gone and helped with the homeless population. I'd been part of all these mission projects, but with Washington Leadership Conference, you choose your cause. You build your plan of how you want to give back to your community. And I think that initiative and that leadership role you take in a service project was a huge stepping stone for me of realizing that I don't have to wait for somebody else to plan a project to just go join that day. Um, I can always be working on these causes that are so important to me.
0: Yeah, I can be the creator rather than the follower.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, that was a big takeaway for you from from that. Are there any other big takeaways from being a part of that?
1: Um, I think also just the sense of community um, you know growing up in high school and middle school there's all sorts of social dynamics going on of finding and stigmas. <laughs> yes and trying to figure out how you want to fit in and how you want to you know find your people. And at the Washington Leadership Conference, it's like all of those stereotypes of forming cliques and everything was just gone. And we were just a group of kids that wanted to make a difference. And that sense of community and that support uh, was so cool. And even as I moved through the years of FFA, the year I got elected to the state office, there was some students that went the same week as me to WLC that also got elected. And so those relationships kept building and kept growing. And it was this continual group to say, hey, like, you can do this. Hey, we can be supportive. It doesn't matter if we play sports. It doesn't matter if we're in the band. Right now, we're all just difference makers. And that was a really cool thing to have.
0: And we're all like-minded difference makers.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: So as a leader of, of FFA, how did you, how do you recruit uh, your members to be advocates? Did you even have to recruit or Did it just come naturally?
1: I think it depends. Um, I think that there are a lot of students who join FFA um, and are immediately just so immersed and involved in the program that they already take that step on their own of wanting to be an advocate, wanting to make a difference. But then I think there's always this group of students who are thinking about it, but aren't genuinely sure if they can. Um, And they feel like maybe they grew up with some challenges or maybe they're not in a position of Power or whatever it looks like to really make that difference. And so for me, whenever I was in my leadership role, I always tried to be very transparent and very vulnerable about some of the things that I had faced and some of the ways that I felt, you know, self doubt. And I questioned my abilities all the time because I wanted students to see that that's normal. We all do it. We all wonder if we're capable. We all wonder if you know, oh, like I grew up and couldn't afford my first FFA jacket. Maybe I shouldn't be running for this leadership position. Maybe I shouldn't be involved in this project. Um, But we should, and we all matter just as much. And so for me, that's how my recruitment process looked was just being vulnerable and giving students a chance to say, oh, well, if she did that, I can do that. It doesn't matter. And so that was something that I think is a cool thing about FFA is using your story to empower other people to embrace their own.
0: You know, Courtney, being vulnerable is, is... Is, is really quite uh, eye-opening. Uh, and I don't want to uh, demean this or downplay this, uh, but I think that's uh, very intuitive on your part to recognize that. Uh, I, I have done different programs where I talk about the five main reasons why people don't participate and and their their fear reasons their fear that they're not intelligent enough their fear that the people who they're talking to know more than what they know and all these other reasons and you you've now combined that with being vulnerable and being willing to step out of that comfort zone and expose yourself to that is quite telling bravo and kudos to you for doing that Uh, So earlier you mentioned personal storytelling. Hmm. Why specifically for the farm industry is personal storytelling important for advocacy?
1: Um, I think first and foremost, when we tell people personal stories, it provides the first option of connection. Um, It's so much easier to connect with the emotions and the feelings of someone going through an experience than to connect with a statistic. And so um, that's something I learned early on in FFA of the power of sharing your experiences. Maybe someone hasn't been in that exact situation, but they can probably imagine times where they felt very similar emotions uh, to what you're experiencing. And I think especially for agriculture, because there is so many values that we have uh, within our industry, and there is so much family aspect to it, really, that we have so many stories that are so powerful to tell of people who just care. They're just good people who are trying to do right, who are trying to live every day in the service of others to feed and clothe the world. And I think that's such a powerful story to tell that's so much more powerful than sharing a statistic about the average age of the American farmer or, you know, how much food we produce every day. Um, to really paint that story of we're just humans who spend every day working to take care of other humans.
0: Uh, that, that is absolutely excellent and right. And I told you Uh, before we uh, actually went on the air that I love working in the agriculture space because of the people. The people are great, down to earth, good-hearted, care about others, want to do well. And you've articulated that incredibly well. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you just think of the simple word advocacy?
1: Hmm, That's a good question. I'm probably going to overthink it now. (laughs) Um, I think for me, the first word that comes to mind when I think of advocacy is uh, value. And I think that's kind of a weird jump. Um, But I think for me, it's because when we choose to advocate for something, we are immediately indirectly saying that it has value. When we advocate for people, we say those people have value. When we advocate for causes, we say those causes have value. And so I think that advocacy is so important because it's just an expansion of telling people why they should value something um, and why you value something. And so I do not it's kind of a weird jump, probably not what you're expecting, um, but it's the first thing that came to mind. You
0: know, uh, I love asking that question, and I ask it of every guest. And I get a different answer almost every single time. And yes, it is the first time that I had value, but I think that you articulated why value is so important when it comes to what advocacy is. Because if you really don't value it, then it's, it's kind of fake and it's phony and it's, it's, uh, it's made up. And then you're not really truly being an advocate at that point in time. Uh, it's almost like you're being a, a paid messenger uh, as, as opposed to having that personal advocacy passion. You know, Courtney, uh, I think I could talk to you for a couple of hours on this <laughs> subject. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation. You uh, really make FFA proud and show the value of being involved uh, in programs like FFA in the development Uh, for the future. And uh, I think our country is in great hands in the agriculture space because of people like you. Do you have any final thoughts or anything you'd love to add today?
1: (laughs) Just thank you. Um, Thanks for giving me the opportunity to be here. I could also talk about FFA all day. Um, It's been a huge part of my life and I'm so grateful for the influence that it has had on who I am as a person, but on countless countless other people as well. And thanks for giving us a space to be able to tell that story.
0: You're more than welcome. How can people reach uh, National FFA for more information if they're listening?
1: Uh, Chances are there's a local chapter wherever you are. We're nationwide, even in the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Um, But I think also uh, you can just go onto the National FFA's website and there's contact pages uh, for folks in leadership. Um, But most of the time, if you walk around for a little bit in a rural community and say the words FFA, you'll find someone that wants to talk to you about it.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. What a great conversation with Courtney Lehman, farm advocate, alumni member, and past national officer at the National FFA. Thank you, Courtney, for being on the show. And I wish you all the best in your endeavors down the road. Thanks. Let's face it. Today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to wrapindex.com. That's RAPindex.com and tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts and subscribe to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and the unwavering passion for advocacy you have. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's Voices in Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices in Advocacy, go to our website, VoicesInAdvocacy.com.